Let's begin, though, with the most ordinary subject that you can ever expect to hear from a preacher on a Sunday morning. And I'm going to, you know, I, I mean, I'm talking about salvation. Uh, you know, we expect an evangelical preacher to say something about being saved on a Sunday morning. Uh, this announcement that Christ has died for our sins, and that is on the cross he satisfied the eternal justice of God by taking our sins upon himself and paying the penalty for each one of those sins. We have to remember that. However many thousands or, or millions of sins you think you've committed, and bottom line is we forget about 80% of all the wrong things we've ever done. Studies have shown that. We forget about 80% of all the wrong things we've ever done, but God doesn't, and Jesus paid for every one of our sins. If we've trusted in him, he's paid for them all. He satisfied the eternal justice of God, paid for our sins, and the result of that, of course, is that whosoever believeth on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the gospel, dear friends. Whoever believes, everyone who believes on him will not perish, but have eternal life. Now that's salvation, and there's nothing more precious to preach at any time. There's always somebody in the congregation who needs to hear that message. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, your sins forgiven. God will love you, and God will give you eternal life and bring you into his eternal home when you leave this world. That's a powerful message, and that's salvation. But listen, dear friends, that's not all there is to salvation. That's not all there is. Salvation not only saves us from our sins, it opens the door to a personal relationship with God in Christ. A personal relationship with God. You say, well, what do you mean a personal relationship? Have you ever had a personal relationship? Are you a child who had a personal relationship with one of your, you know, your parents, your mom, your dad, or at least one of them? You ever have a personal relationship with a sibling? Ever have a personal relationship with a friend? That's exactly what we mean when we say a personal relationship with God. There's that old hymn. In fact, as I've been working on this message and thinking about it, the old hymn in the garden comes back to my mind over and over again. You know the chorus. He walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own. That's a personal relationship with God. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. Not, do, not only do we receive eternal life that takes us to heaven when we die, but we have a personal relationship with God. Let me put it to you this way. We need to understand as we study our Bibles that John 3.16 leads directly to John 14. You say, well, what, what do you mean John 14? Well, let's look at a slide, and we'll see the Scripture right before us. John 14, starting in verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commands. Remember what Jesus' command is? Believe on him whom God hath sent. So that would be the first command is to believe on Jesus. That's the command. Believe on Jesus. And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth, this counselor. This is not new news to a lot of you, but maybe it will come with fresh uh, power. With, with, uh, maybe it will come at least as fresh news, if not new news. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him, that is the Holy Spirit, this counselor, this spirit of truth, because it doesn't see him or know him. That is, you can't see him or know him unless you believe upon the Lord Jesus. But you, meaning you disciples and all who will come after you, Peter and James and John and ultimately us, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. And then Jesus says the most amazing thing. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. 
Jesus, by the presence of the Spirit, is coming to us. When you are born again, Jesus, along with the Father, through the Spirit, takes up residence in your life. We sometimes say in your heart, but, but I, I don't want it to be a, a word that connotes just an emotional relationship. Remember, biblically, heart speaks to the mind, the will, and the, and the emotions. All of it combined together. The mind, the will, and the emotions. And Jesus takes up residence in us then to be Lord over us in our hearts. That is, guiding our thoughts, leading us to do the right thing, that's the will, and of course, love, leading us to love him as he first loves us. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. One of the precious truths about the Trinity is this that wherever you find one person of the Trinity, you always find all three. So when the Holy Spirit comes to take up residence in us, so do the Father and the Son. So Jesus promised to come to us, but the next thing I want you to see is that Jesus promised to come to us as individuals, as individuals. He doesn't just come like a cloud or a gas and, and sort of suffuse himself through the room. He comes to take up residence in individual lives. Let's look at John 14, verse 19. In a little while, the world will see me no longer. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples the night before he's arrested. The next afternoon, he's crucified, or the next day, he's crucified, and, uh, and, and, and dies, of course, is buried, rises on the first Easter Sunday. Forty days later, ascends back into heaven. But actually, the world never saw Jesus again. After he was buried in Joseph's tomb, the world never saw Jesus again. The disciples did, but the world never saw Jesus again. So in a little while, the world will see me no longer, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. And blessedly, during the first two or three hundred years of the existence of the church, when martyrs were being made on every side as various forces came against the church and tried to stamp it out by killing all the believers, one of the things that was so amazing was that the people understood that this power was directed, the Christians understood that this, this animosity was directed toward Jesus living in them. They believed that Jesus was with them, that he could give them, and he did give them strength to stand in the face of martyrdom and, and, and in the face of death itself. And, and so they continued to make new believers, even as the church was being cruci- uh, uh, persecuted on every side. They continued to make so many new believers that it was said of them in that day that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. Wherever the blood was spilled on the ground, it seemed like new believers came up. New churches were, were planted and so forth. But in that day, Jesus says, because I live, you will live too. Now verse 20, and this is such a favorite verse of mine these days, and you've seen it before, but I'm going to do it to you again. I'm going to use the hand motions. In that day, verse 20, you will know, Jesus says, that I am in the Father. Christ is in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And so on the day when the Holy Spirit comes in, you know that you're in Christ and that Christ is in you. And so verse 21, Jesus says, the one, notice this, it's now explicitly singular. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my father. And then Jesus says something similar to verse 18. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. I will reveal myself to him. I just want to pause and ask you right now. Does Jesus reveal himself to you? Are you in in a life, are you living such a life in the spirit that if not every minute, 
if not every day, but at least from time to time, the Lord Jesus himself reveals himself to you in the most direct and personal ways, in such a way that you know I possess him because he possesses me. He is in me and I am in him and he is revealing himself to me. Notice those promises then. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you and by the Holy Spirit he did. And then in verse 21, I also will love him and will reveal myself to him, that is, the one who believes in him, and so forth. So Jesus promised then to come to individuals. And then I want you to notice next what it means for Jesus to reveal himself to you. What's the point? What's the purpose? The only problem I have with that gospel hymn I cited earlier, he walks with me, he talks with me, he tells me I'm his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. The only problem I have with that uh, with that song is that it's, it's, it's so sweet that it's almost effeminate. <laughs> do, you, do, do you get what I'm saying here? It's, it's, it just goes almost too far on the emotional side. But here's the point. As we move to the, yeah, thank you, this, that's the right slide. Jesus reveals himself to us in order to reveal himself through us. This is the great blessing of the true biblical doctrine of salvation that Jesus reveals himself to us in order to reveal himself through us. So it's a great blessing, but it's also a great burden. You see, the greatest blessing in the world is to know God, to, to be filled with the Spirit, to have the mind of Christ, to understand what God is doing in the world in a way that other people simply cannot. There's, I don't care who the greatest Hindu uh, scholar is or who the greatest Buddhist Uh, scholar is, or who the greatest Muslim scholar is, none of them are capable of understanding life, the world, everything around us, in the way that even the simplest Christian who is filled with the Spirit and informed by the Word of God, none of of them are capable of understanding the world as we are. It's a great privilege. It's also a great burden, because you see, God gives us a revelation of himself in order to, are you ready for this, in order to commission us and empower us for service in his kingdom. I, I, I um, you know, you want to love Roman Catholics, and I do love Roman Catholics, many of them. And you want to also be grateful for many of the great things that has, have been accomplished in the world. And there are many great things that have been accomplished in the world because of the Roman Catholic Church, and many times because of the moral sensitivity that they bring to our world. They were pro-life long before evangelicals understood the importance of it and pro-family long before evangelicals understood the importance of it, and and so forth and so on. But the thing that always breaks my heart is this separation between God and the people in that church. The separation between God and the people. They don't understand the joy, in fact, even the possibility of a personal relationship with God in Christ. Please don't think that I'm attacking anybody just now, but I think we have to be very clear about these things. We, they don't, they're not given this knowledge. For them, religion is something that happens in front of them. It happens up here, you know, behind the altar, shall we say, or in front of the altar. The priest does it, and the people just watch while the priest does everything. In fact, I just recently reread again just how important it is that the priest eat the bread and drink the wine, and that means the Lord's Supper's been done, whether the people eat anything or drink anything at all. It's all about what the priest does. It has nothing to do with the people. But dear friends, or I should say little to do with the people, that's not what the Bible teaches. 
The Bible teaches the priesthood of every believer, that all of us are called into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's a great joy. But hear me carefully, it's also a great burden. Because the church will talk, the Catholic Church will talk about the priest having a vocation to serve God. And they, they mean differently than the so-called laity. In the Baptist Church, that distinction is ripped away. All of us are priests. All of us have a vocation. All of us are called to serve the Lord with every bit of our being. All of us are called to be filled with the Spirit, to be ambassadors for Christ, to serve the Lord in the world. God reveals himself to each of us in order to reveal himself to the world through all of us. And so I say to you, it is a great burden then, because when God reveals himself, he does so in order to commission us and empower us for kingdom, in, uh, for kingdom service. Are you involved in kingdom service? Do you feel empowered for kingdom service? That's what spiritual gifts are all about, to empower you for kingdom service. And I just want to add one thing, and that is that we are accountable to God if we fail or if we refuse to accept his commission. If we refuse his commission, we say, Lord, I want to go to heaven when I die, but I don't want to have to do anything more than just make it through life. I mean, just give me a job and give me a house and I'll make my own meals and I'll buy my own clothes and I'll make my own way through life. I'm not going to depend on other people. All I want to do is just exist until I die and then I'll go to heaven and be with you. And God says, that is so wrong. That is so much less than I have for you. I have called you. I am commissioning you by the presence of the Holy Spirit, by the spiritual gifts that I'm giving you. I am commissioning you to service in the kingdom. And we are accountable to God if we fail or refuse to accept his commission. God help us to know what our, our call is, to know what our gifts are, to accept the call, to accept the gifts, and with God's help to use them for his glory. Again, something I mentioned a few months ago, but I want to bring it up again, if I may. And this is a prophecy that came out of a prayer of Moses. I don't, I'm not even sure he thought of it as a prophecy. He thought of it as a prayer, but it became a prophecy anyway. When Moses was overwhelmed with the responsibility of leading Israel, a couple of million people, probably more than that, with him on this 40-year-long camping trip. I mean, I, I, sometimes I, my mind boggles at the thought of it, but, uh, and it should boggle, I think, when you try to think of all that was going on. When he was overwhelmed with the responsibility of leading Israel, he cried out to God for help. And God told him to select 70 outstanding men, elders and other outstanding men from the tribes, of the 12 tribes, and God gave him the promise that when these men were selected, he would take some of the Spirit. Now I'm quoting from, from uh, Numbers chapter 11. God says to Moses, I'll take some of the Spirit who's on you and put the Spirit on them. Now remember, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. If God is infinite, and he is, then the Holy Spirit is infinite as well. So to take some of the Spirit that's on Moses and put it on these 70 men does not reduce, not, not even in one single iota, does not reduce the amount of the Spirit that still rests upon, upon uh, uh, Moses, but rather it just simply means that from here the Spirit is expanded to these other 70 men. Moses was as full of the Spirit afterwards as he was before. And we need to understand as well that when the Holy Spirit comes in, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in you bodily. That's an amazing thought. But the fullness of the Godhead dwells in you when you have the Holy Spirit. So Moses, God says, Moses, I'm going to take some of the Spirit who's on you and put the Spirit on them. They will help you bear the burden of the people so that you do not have to bear it by yourself. That's Numbers eleven seventeen. 
Now, when the Spirit came upon these men, they all prophesied. I don't want to spend a lot of time discussing what that might mean. The fact is, there's a lot of uncertainty about what that means in the Old Testament. There's, in my view, there's little or no uncertainty about what prophecy means or being able to prophesy means, for example, in 1 Corinthians 14. We'll say more about that later. But they all prophesied. But there were two men who had not come to the tabernacle with the other men. They had been selected, but for whatever reason, they were not at the tabernacle. They were still back in the camp, and they began to prophesy back in the camp. Now, when Joshua heard about this, he was upset, and he began to cry out, Moses, my Lord, stop them. Moses' reply was prophetic. Are you jealous on my account? If only all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would place his spirit on them. If only all of the people were prophets and God would place his spirit on them. Numbers eleven twenty nine, 29, as you can see on the screen behind me. Do you realize then that in the new covenant, God answered Moses' prayer? That's why I call it a prophetic prayer. Moses made it a prayer. I'm not sure he understood it as a prophet, prophecy, but it turned out to be. Because after his resurrection, our great covenant representative, you know who I mean, Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord, ascended back to heaven where he was exalted and enthroned. Now, I use those words because Peter says in Acts chapter 2, having received the kingdom that he went to receive, he has shed forth this which you now see and hear, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the tongues of fire, the sound of the rushing mighty wind. And so from heaven itself, our Lord poured out the Holy Spirit on each one of his brothers and sisters. Now, Since the first Pentecost, sorry, all of us are prophets. Did you hear that? Since the first Pentecost, all of us are prophets. Because God has placed the Spirit on each of us, in each of us. Like the 70 who were filled with the Holy Spirit for the purpose of helping Moses, all born-again children of God are given the Spirit to serve alongside who? The pastor? To serve alongside the elders? No, to serve alongside our Lord as he builds his church. And this is the commission that makes each of us accountable to God. You're given the Spirit to serve alongside the Lord Jesus in building up his church and extending his kingdom. Now, the next thing I want to say, and we're going to get to spiritual gifts in just a second, God's love is best expressed through spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, but each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That's from the New American Standard Bible. I actually think it's a little clearer there than the HCSB. 1 Corinthians 14, 12, so also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. So the question is, how does God build up the church? He builds it up through ordinary Christian believers exercising their spirit-given gifts exercising them, using them unselfishly, generously, sacrificially in order to build up the local church for the purpose of strengthening and extending God's kingdom. Let's go to the next slide. You're going to start seeing these gifts now before you. This is the spiritual gift list from 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8, 9, and 10, and then also verse 28. That last column, there are three columns there. That last column is about gifted individuals, and you'll see that they are uh, basically people who incorporate these, these spiritual gifts into themselves. Let's just talk about some of these for a moment. I'm going to just stand over here to one side where I can see this list uh, for a moment. But the gift of wisdom, uh, 
It means exactly that. It just means knowing what to do when, when it needs to be done. Uh, I, let me just tell you a quick story. My dad, and you, you, many of you remember him when he used to attend here a number of years ago now, but my dad, who was a great man of God, was also almost entirely unlearned and unlettered. He never went to school until, until he was an adult, never learned to read until he was in his 20s, and uh, it never, he never read well, never read easily, and he certainly never read widely. And yet, I, st- I noticed this when I was a little boy that whenever there were problems, and as I grew into teenage years, I, I was in, increasingly aware of it, when there were problems in the church, you could almost count on it that at some point the pastor, wherever it was, and we lived in several places, the pastor would show up at our house and he'd say, Roy, can you and I talk? And they'd go out in the yard or whatever they would do, and, and because my dad had this gift of just seeing right into the heart of whatever the real issue was in the church. He had a gift for that. I call it the gift of wisdom. I believe it is a, it, I think it, he, he possessed the gift of wisdom. It wasn't education, it was wisdom. Knowledge. Let's talk about knowledge for just a moment. I'm not going to talk about each one, we don't have time, but I do want to share some things with you. Now, most of you know Boris and Mirka Viscasil, who are longtime members of our church. I wish all of you were privileged to know them. They're so involved out at Morley at the mission there that uh, to the First Nations people there, that we see them rarely, and they're usually second service attenders when they are here, on those rare occasions when they are here. But they always, almost always come to prayer meeting on Wednesday night, and I'm so glad they do. And they share with us what's going on at their church. And right now, and you need to pray for the, the church out at Morley where they minister. It is under severe attack. Uh, some of the First Nations people are trying to impose native religion upon the church with the, the pagan, and let's be clear about it, pagan and, and, uh, and, and devilish uh, ceremonies that, are, that have nothing to do with faith in Jesus Christ. And so uh, last week, and I, I'm skipping over a lot of the details, but last week when they arrived, they found a whole lot of people were leaving because the group that's trying to force the church uh, to, to become kind of native religionists, they had succeeded in making sure the pastor didn't show up that Sunday, and so when Boris and Mirka showed up, the handful of people who had come to church were walking away because there was no one there to lead the service. The church was cold and shut and shut. And when they saw Boris, they turned around and came back. And, uh, and he said, well, let's at least maybe go inside and we can pray and, and, and do some things there. And then an amazing thing began to happen. One particular woman, a First Nations lady, who had never before distinguished herself to Boris as having any particular knowledge of the Bible at all. Very humble woman. She was always there at church and loved the Lord, but he never thought of her. And she started naming scriptures. We need to read this verse. We need to read this verse. And as she named those scriptures, they were exactly the things that they needed to read to prepare their hearts for the kind of prayer warfare that they had to enter into. I think we have a gift of knowledge here being displayed in this very simple but very wonderful woman who understood what needed to be done in that particular hour. And so on, so forth and so on. Many of these things are things that all of us have to some degree or another, but in individuals they're enhanced so that by the time Paul goes through the list and, uh, and talks about all these various things that you can see, then in verse 28 he talks about these, these uh, people, mostly men, but men and women, who uh, so possessed these gifts that you could say to them, you know, here's the, the apostles, here's the healers, here's the teachers, here's the miracle workers, here's the, uh, again, the, uh, teachers and healers, and I can't see in the back as well, and helpers and managers and language speakers, individuals who so possessed these gifts that they could, uh, 
that they could uh, express themselves as I'm a healer or I'm a teacher or whatever it might be that they were. These are gifted people. Now, I want to say something quickly before we move to a couple of other things and bring this service to a close. First of all, it's my conviction. Let's go maybe to the next slide, the, the list from Romans 12. No, skip on to the next one, sorry. Skip on to the list from Romans 12. Yeah, the next slide. So whether it's 1 Corinthians 12 or this slide, every one of us should find ourselves in these lists. And every one of these gifts is designed in one way or another to strengthen the church. But now, just to give you a distinction between Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, I think 1 Corinthians 12 is a, a snapshot of some of the gifts that were operating in the first century church and that needed to operate in the first century church, while other gifts are mentioned that sometimes seem to have a wider applicability. And I think the list from Romans 12 is a list of gifts that have a wider applicability. And then, let's just be clear about one thing. Unlearned languages is not the only gift with a primary application to, uh, shall we say, the, uh, uh, just the announcement of a transition from one covenant to another. Remember in previous weeks I've shown you that from Romans chapter, or 1 Corinthians 14, verses 20, 21, 22, that Paul says tongues is especially designed to announce the end of the old covenant to unbelieving Jews. That was the purpose of the gift of tongues. In a secondary way, it has the possibility of, uh, the possibility of, um, of use, being used to present the gospel where, where it's desperate that you speak to someone. Very important that you speak to someone whose language you don't know, but then you are given the gift of speaking this unlearned language. And I think in previous weeks I've talked to you about, um, about that from... Uh, uh, the story of Bud Fuchs. We prayed for Bud Fuchs just earlier this morning, uh, Adrian did, and you'll remember that he was enabled when he was in Cameroon to speak pigeon without having to learn it. For one night only, but he was enabled to speak pigeon without, without having to learn it. Now, if we could, uh, let's back up, Jonas, just one slide to the previous slide, because one of the things that I think we have to understand is there is a transition from that period before the destruction of Jerusalem to after the destruction of Jerusalem. Let me just show you some things, if I may. For example, does the gift of wisdom still apply today? Yes, but there are no more apostles uh, who were given the gift of wisdom in a mighty way in order to be able to, uh, uh, to guide the church in its formative stage. In Acts chapter 20, Paul officially gives over the leadership of the local church to the elders in each local church. And then the gift of knowledge. Yes, but the gift of knowledge while given, is not so as to take away from the necessity for learning and scholarship. Some people have actually thought that in today's world, if I have the gift of knowledge, I don't have to read my Bible. I'll just know what God wants me to know and do what God wants me to do. No, that does not take away the necessity for learning and scholarship. And then the gift of faith, then and now, this supernatural ability to just trust God in the midst of persecution, difficulties of all sorts. The gift of healing, yes, God still heals. And we, all of us maybe have got some stories of miraculous healings. I can tell you about Jim Flagg, whose neck, his broken neck, and I saw the vertebrae, and it was such a clear thing. I saw the x-ray. His vertebrae was so broken that even I could understand that that's what the x-ray was showing. And yet, one week later, perfectly healed. Does miraculous healing happen? Yes. But there are no more faith healers or, or miraculous healers. When somebody sets himself up and says, you come to me and I'll heal your cancer, you come to me and I'll heal your uh, whatever it may be, muscular dystrophy or whatever it may be, they're lying. There are no more faith healers. 
Are there miracles? Yes, but they're no more professional miracle workers. Reject those people. They're liars. They're, they're, they're out to scam you. Uh, prophecy, yes, but no more prophets. Since the completion of Scripture, no one gets to add anything to God's Word or take anything away from it. And one of the saddest scandals of modern times are the outbursts of prophecy and prophetic memories, uh, ministries that we have, like, for example, the infamous Kansas City prophets who were guiding people's lives down to the nth degree, where you should work, what sort of car you should buy, uh, who you should marry, and so forth. And then it turns out they were using their prophetic gifts to persuade women to have sex with them. And I'm not even making that up. There are no more prophets. Prophecy, yes, but we mean by that what the Scripture means by that, which is to, of course, build up the church, to edify the church, to encourage the church, to strengthen the church, to console Christians in times of difficulty by applying God's Word, applying God's Word to the situation. No more prophets today. And then, of course, the ability to distinguish between the spirits. And yes, there are miraculous abilities to speak uh, languages that we've not learned, but only for the gift or for the need of, of gospel preaching at the moment and then the interpretation of gifts and helping and managing and so forth. Now, I'm out of time, and I'm well aware of that. I wish I could finish this message. I'm, like always, there seems like there's always more to say than there is time to say it in. But I do want to just mention a couple of things here. One of them is, I will mention this. There is a clear passage in God's Word. Um, skip down to uh, uh, slide 10, if you don't mind, Jonas, and you'll, you'll be able to see it there. Clear passage in God's Word that indicates then that some of these supernatural gifts were transitional. And I'll close with this with the, uh, this and the, and the uh, application at the end. But here's the thing about transitional gifts. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, the writer says, We must therefore pay even more attention to what we have heard, so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding, and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how much will we escape, or how will we escape, if we neglect such a great salvation? And then notice what comes now in the italics. This great salvation. It was first spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, that would be the original apostles, at the same time, God also testified, that is, that the same God who spoke and ministered through Jesus, God is testifying that he's with the apostles as they are putting the church together and building up the church in those first years of the existence of the church. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. And so what you see then is this clear sense that there were some supernatural enablings like, for example, when Peter's shadow simply fell on a sick person and they got well. This was to show that Peter was filled with the same spirit that Jesus had been filled with, that he is also now speaking for God. But those days passed early in the history of the church, and by the time of the book of Hebrews, this is being written in the past tense, that these were things God had already done. He testified by signs and wonders, various miracles, and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit according to his will. But once the Bible was completed, dear friends, we need to understand that from here, God's work is the transformation of souls, and he works through the power of his word more than he does through um, the kind of miracle working that we saw in Peter and Paul in the early days, early days of their ministry. Can you bow your heads, please? We're going to take just a moment before the Lord. This is application, and, and, and hopefully this makes it all worthwhile. All of us who call Christ Lord, 
have a duty, I think, to discern three things. Number one, the proper application of spiritual gifts in our day. Do you hear what I'm saying? Are they, you know, just because you can see a gift listed somewhere, like in 1 Corinthians 28, or, or, I'm sorry, 12, does not necessarily mean that its, its primary usage did not end with the transition period from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. So we have to, first of all, discern the proper application of spiritual gifts in our day. Secondly, which of the gifts God is calling us to exercise for his glory. And three, just how well we're living up to our personal responsibility in this area. And the main thing is this, not to get bogged down on which, is, which gift do I have, which gift don't I have, but am I willing to serve the Lord? You get willing. You volunteer. You keep on volunteering. There's a principle in secular life, and it's this. It's easier to move from one job to another job than it is from no job to a job. If you've got a job, keep that job till you can find a better job. The same thing with, holy, with the spiritual gifts. If you've got an opportunity to serve, serve, even if it doesn't seem a really good fit. You serve in that gift, and then God will move you from there to where maybe you fit better, and you'll find what your gift is by serving. You don't find your gift by thinking about it. So that's the third, and then the third thing, just how well are you living up to your personal responsibility in this area? Do you live in the Spirit? Do you walk in the Spirit? Are you ministering with gifts of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit? God help us to say yes and to be able to prove it, not to me, but to ourselves and to our Lord. And thirdly, do you understand that the Spirit is given and his gifts are given for the life of the body? This is where the Corinthian church fell down. They thought the the gifts of the Spirit had been given to show the world how spiritual they were. They wanted to show off their spiritual gifts. But they're given for the life of the body, to be used in serving others, making others, other lives better. And do you really understand then that the purpose of the body is to be the visible presence and the audible voice of the Lord Jesus Christ? That we're to use everything we have, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.20, to plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I just want us to take a moment then We'll just remain silent for just a a few more moments while you meditate on these things and ask yourself, how am I doing in serving the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit, in doing something for the kingdom? How am I doing?